Welcome, gather round the fireside and listen to a tale of Yon McCool, Cullen, Deirdre of the Sorrows, Grawn, New Whale. From giants right down to fairies, of both the trooping and solitary, and those who are sometimes scary. Anything goes by the fireside. Yeah. Fireside, the Puka Fireside, the Merrow Fireside. Kings and queens fighting heroes, don't you run from the fun, there's no need to hide. Sit by the fireside. Mm-hmm. Fireside. Hello, and welcome to Fireside, the Irish storytelling podcast. Each week on Fireside, we take a story from folklore and mythology, uh, retell it, have a chat about the story itself and about the craft, culture and history of storytelling. My name is Kevin C. Olihan, and I am your host and your Fireside Bard. Welcome to episode 10, episode X of Fireside. I'm really delighted I started using Roman numerals um, on the episode title pages, uh, which we'll quickly see how quickly I come to uh, resent that when it gets into the higher numbers. I think we should be grand until we get to like 40. I think, yeah, 30, 39 I could do. What's that? XXX, 1X. Is it that many? Some, Some Roman... Some other Roman fans could probably point that out to me. That's an easy fix, and that's obviously a while away, but we'll see if soon enough the actual Roman numerals are taking up the entire page and you don't actually see the name of the story. But I think it looks nice, and I hope you agree. So, besides that, welcome back. Um, this is a very exciting episode for me. I'll talk more a bit after, after the story. I want to get straight to it. Um, but if you're enjoy- if this is your first time listening to the podcast, you're very welcome. For this episode particularly, I would very much recommend being caught up with the mythological stories we've told so far. This is very much the final part. This is like a part five of early of early Irish mythology, and it's very much a, cu- a culmination of what we've talked about before, um, from the Tua de Danann coming to Ireland. Um, through to the reign of Brez, to the coming of Lu, Lavada, and finally the sons of Tyran. This now culminates with the great battle of Maitera, as it's called. Maitera is, those who've listened before will know that that is a phrase, a name that I have struggled with, um, mostly because just I've seen a few different pronunciations for it, but having consulted with Irish speaker friends, Maitara is the pronunciation that I will hopefully stick with from here on out. And that's important to, for me to admit when I have been wrong and to correct where I can. So enough waffle. I'm going to get right to it, but we'll have a chat after the story itself. Um, if you're enjoying the podcast, if you've listened to the podcast before, I should say, uh, please continue to, to subscribe to the page, to leave a rating, to leave a review. Um, I've been delighted with the reception that the podcast has been getting so far, but it is it is a tough market, um, naturally, and those ratings and those subscriptions and those comments, they really do 
make a difference in the the vast sea of podcasting. So thank you so much if you've done that already. And if you haven't, smash that up. Those uh, call to actions that everyone's always doing. They do work. They're a real thing. They're not just for the crack. Um, enough M's, enough waffle. Let's get to the story. This is The Great Battle of Maithara on Fireside. The Great Battle of Maithara. War. The time had come at last. A massive army of the giants of the Fomor landed on the coast of Ireland. First on the shore was their king, Baelor of the Evil Eye. He was followed by Brez, former king of the Tua de Danon, who had been deposed and now returned to Ireland in search of vengeance on his own people. Baelor had long wanted to return to Ireland, where the Fomor had once lived, before the coming of the Tua de Danon. And in Brez's bloodlust, he had his opportunity. Baelor also had a very personal reason for returning to Ireland. It had long been foretold that Baelor would be slain by his own grandson. That grandson was now fully grown and was the king of the Tua de Danon, Lu of the Long Hand, the mightiest of all warriors. Baelor sought to be the one to defy prophecy and kill his grandson before he had a chance to kill him. As to Lu himself, when the king of the men of Dia heard that the long-awaited arrival of the Fomor had come at last, he began to panic, which was very unlike Lu. As passionate as he was, he was nearly always in control of his temperament. Lu had sent out a call to all the tribes in Ireland, to unite against the threat of invasion from the dreaded Fomor. Many had answered the call already, but not all, and certainly not enough to defeat the Fomor. The cost of this call to arms had already weighed heavily on Lu, for his own father, Cian, had rode out to rally troops and was murdered in cold blood by the sons of Tyran. But Lu had now avenged that death, and from it had collected the greatest collection of armory and weaponry the world had known. Lou wanted to delay the battle until Ireland was ready, so he sent the wise, fatherly figure of the Tuatha Dé Danann, the Dagda, to meet with the Fomor and ask them to hold off their attack. When the Dagda met with the Fomor, they said they might have their delay, but it would come at a price. Elathan who was a king of the Fomor and father to Brez, was embarrassed. One of the main reasons for his son's removal as king was the lack of hospitality he had shown to guests, one of the most unforgivable crimes in all ancient cultures, it seems. The cunning Alathan sought to both amend his son's mistake and also avenge his removal. Alathan said, to show you the past actions of Brez do not represent the way of life of our people. We wish to offer you hospitality. That's quite all right, said the Dagda. I better be getting back. We've a bit of a war to prepare for. So do yourselves. Are you sure? We made broth. The Dagda loved broth. I love broth. We know you love broth, said Lapin. 
Well, it would be a terrible crime for me to refuse such hospitality, said the doctor. So the Fomor brought forth the king's cauldron, which they had filled with eighty gallons of milk, the same amount of meal and fat, and finally a whole load of pigs, sheep, and goats. They brought the cauldron to the boil, and then poured it into a hole in the ground, which to me doesn't seem all that hospitable. Here it is, said Laffin. Eat up, and if you leave even a morsel left over, we'll kill you and march on the Tour de Danon at sunrise. So the Dagda took a giant ladle, which was big enough for an adult man and woman to sit in, and began to devour the broth. The Vomor all began to laugh, believing that there was no man who could consume such a meal. But the Dagda was not a man. He was a god. A god of crops, agriculture, and seasons. A god who really loved broth. And he took spoonful after spoonful of this colossal stew until he got down on his hands and knees and scooped up the last bits of meat and bone, which had now mixed in with the earth and the gravel, until it was as if no food had been there at all. The smiles on the faces of the Fomor had well and truly faded, until the Dagda tried to stand found he couldn't, and instantly fell into a food coma. The Fomor began to laugh again at the sleeping god, whose belly was now the size of the cauldron the meal had been prepared in. The Fomor thought they had surely bested him, until morning came, and the Dagda rose, thanked the Fomor for their hospitality, and the Dagda quite literally rolled home. When the Dagda arrived back at Tara, Lou was appalled. Look at the state of you, said Lou. You won't fight many battles in that shape. On the contrary, I always find it important to eat a fine meal before any battle. A fine meal is one thing, but you look like you've eaten enough to feed a whole army. Here, if I hadn't eaten that meal, you wouldn't have your extra time to prepare you sent me to ask for, which you now have. Don't worry about me. I'll be battle ready. What have you been doing while I've been away? Oh, I've been asking every druid, warrior, poet, and even cupbearer what they can do for Ireland in the battle to come, said Lou. Well, said the Dagda, who had been bolstered by the previous day's events, anything and everything any individual can do for you on the battlefield, I can do with only myself. That sounds like something I would say, said Lou. They laughed and prepared for war. When the army had been gathered and the delay could be extended no further, the men of Ireland and the Fomor marched towards each other until they met on the plains of Maitara. It is worth noting that, uh, at a further level of confusion, this is not the same Maitara on which the first great battle of Ireland was fought between the Tua de Danan and the Firbolux, which was more westward. This Maitara was to the north. It had been decided by the people of Ireland that Lou, despite being the greatest warrior, would not be allowed to go into battle. He had been such a great king to them that they could not cope with the prospect of his death in battle. Lou was, of course, outraged by this, but nine great warriors were assigned to him to stop him entering battle. Lou could have quite easily struck each one of them down, but he would not take up arms against his fellow countrymen especially not when they were at war. So he had no choice 
to remain behind. On the first day of the Battle of Moitera, much like a considerable amount of modern warfare, no gods, kings or princes went into battle. Just the fierce and proud common fighting men. From day to day there was no clear winner on either side, except for one considerable advantage to the two of the Danon, that the Fomor only noticed after the first week ended. When the weapons of the Fomor broke, they stayed broken, and when the warriors of the Fomor were killed, they stayed dead. But such was not the case with the Tua de Dana. If any of their weapons were cracked or blunted or broken or any of their men slashed, stabbed or killed, they were all on the battlefield the next day as good as new. This was, of course, very bad news for the Fomor. The reason for the resurrection element of the men of Dia was, to the west of Maitera lay the well of Slanya. Dian Caked, the healer of the two Deiranen, along with his son Octrul and daughter Armed, his other son Miak having been murdered by his father for challenging his abilities, all cast singing spells over the well. And when any man or woman of Ireland was wounded or dead, they would be brought to and dropped into the Slanya and would resurface out of the well alive and, well, well. Once they were alive again, the people of Ireland would take their shattered weapons to Govnu, the smith, who would mend them so that they were raring for battle the next day. The Fomor became frantic about seeing dead men resurrected. They had not known how this was being achieved, so they sent a spy to the camp of the Tuatha The spy was Ruadan, son of Brez and the grandson of the Dagda. Because he was of the bloodline, he could blend in as one of the men of Dia. Ruadan never saw the well, but he did see Govnu fixing up all the countless broken weapons, and he hurried back to tell Brez. Father, I think their weapons have magical properties. I cannot tell how they are coming back to life, but Govnu, the smith, is mending their weapons single-handedly and at an incredible speed. Did you kill him? I... I, I came to tell you. So in the time you took to come back here and tell me, Govnu has continued to mend weapons that are permanently killing our people. The battle had made Brez cruel to his son, and Ruadan was given a spear and was sent back to murder Govnu. When he arrived back at the enemy camp, Ruadan went straight to Govnu and asked him to sharpen his spear for him. The smith quickly obliged and handed the spear back to Ruadan so sharp it would nearly cut your eyes out by looking at its point. As soon as the spear was back in his hands, Ruadan launched the spear at Govnu and pierced the smith's chest. Govnu let out a cry and pulled the spearhead out of its wound, turned it at Ruadan and impaled the young man where he stood. Brez mourned for the loss of his son and swore revenge. Word finally reached him about the well of Slanya, and Octrialach of the Fomor had the idea of having every man of the Fomor take stones to the well and hurl them inside until the well was dried up. When this had been done, a cairn was built on top of it, and it became known as Octrialach's Cairn. 
By the time Govnu arrived at the well, it had already been dried up, so he could not heal himself. But luckily, Dean Caked was there to heal his brother personally. As if his day hadn't been bad enough already, when Govnu went back to mending weapons for the battle, a messenger came in to tell him that his wife was cheating on him. He took the news quite hard, as any of us would, but when he was told, he had a spear named Nez in his hand. In a jealous rage, Govnu put a spell on the spear that anyone who was struck by it would be engulfed in flames. With the well dried up, and Govnu detained and distracted, the tide turned in favour of the Fomor. The last day of the battle came, and the two armies met each other, with Baylor of the Evil Eye leading the charge of the Fomor, and Nuda of the Silver Hand, the former king, leading the men of Ireland. They met, and there Nuda was slain at the hand of Baylor, and the Dagda was stabbed by Kethlin, Baylor's wife. When Lou heard of Nuda's death and the Dagda's injury, he could not stand by any longer. He broke free from his protectors, jumped on Manonin's horse, and rode to battle. When the people of Ireland saw Lou ride into battle, the hope they had thought was lost returned to their hearts. Lou rode around, singing a song of courage to his men. He told them, Macorja, it is better for us to die today in battle than live under the bonds or under tribute to a foreign invader. Finally, Lou saw Baylor in the distance. His grandfather, his enemy, the man he had been destined to kill since before he was born, his life's purpose. Lou turned his horse towards Baylor and began to charge. Baylor could see Lou approaching through his one open eye. It was time to reveal the evil eye. He called to a soldier to lift the lid of his left eye, but before the evil eye could get Lou in its clear sight, Lou launched a spear which pierced the evil eye through the back of Baylor's head and out the other side. With the evil eye now facing the direction of the Fomor, every single one of them was incinerated by its gaze. To finish the job, Lou leapt off his horse, went to the body of Baylor, and cut his head off. The prophecy was fulfilled, and the great battle of Maitera was ended. The Fomor that had not met their end on the battlefield, or by Baylor's evil eye, were beaten back to the sea by the Tour de Dan. One such survivor was Brez. Lou searched and searched for him and finally found him with no guards to protect him. Spare me, cried Brez. After all the bloodshed you have been the cause of, why exactly would I do that, replied Lou. Because if you spare me... I can make it so the cows of Ireland never go dry. You'll have to do better than that. I know you have power over the cows currently alive, but what of their offspring? <laughs> I can make it that the men of Ireland may reap a harvest every quarter. Well, that's ridiculous, mocked the Dagda. The spring is for ploughing and sowing. 
The summer for strength of corn, the autumn for ripeness, and the winter for using. Lou had no desire to kill anymore, not even the shadow of a man cowering before him. So he said to Brez, We do not want any enchantments or trickery. Teach us the best way for the men of Ireland to plough, to reap, and to sow. To this Brez said, Let them always plough on a Tuesday. Let them always reap on a Tuesday. And let them always sow on a Tuesday. With that, Lou was satisfied, and he allowed Brez to go free. And that's where the Irish learned the agriculture that defined them as a nation. It is not known, but heavily thought, that Brez spent the rest of his life in exile with the Fomor, who never threatened the Tua de Danon again. Lou ruled as king for forty years, but eventually he decided the time had come for him to step down. In his place, the Dagda was made king of the men of Dia, a position he had long secretly wanted and was very well suited to. As for Lou, some say he left Ireland. Some say he finally met his end at the hand of three sons whose father he had murdered and was buried at the hill of Isnock, the place where the five provinces met, and the first place a fire was ever lit in Ireland. It was lit by Mida, and burned for six years. And from that flame, every chief fire in Ireland was lit. Regardless of the circumstances of his mortal death, Lou's role in Irish mythology was far from over. One day he would meet Khan of the Hundred Battles and proclaim his destiny. He would play a major role in the cattle raid of Cooley. And of course in the life of his son, Cucullin. To be continued. Now, that is the great battle of Maitera on Fireside. I hope you enjoyed it. It really is... So to those of you who've who've listened to every episode of this podcast, well, every episode of the mythology episode, certainly. Um, I hope you enjoyed that, that it is very much a culmination of of the first five stories, everyone playing such a major role. I had wondered, like, how how much I'd have to break this down. Like, there was... I wanted to to build up to this... That's why I wanted to separate um, the myths up to now. Because I want I want this podcast to be able to listen to out of order, in any order, like classic episodes of Doctor Who. But this, where possible, I try to catch up, catch up um, everyone like in in the stories, so that that hopefully yeah, you can listen to this episode without the the context of the other four myth episodes but to get the real the real beef of it of course I think it is I think it is quite rewarding it was quite rewarding to write because they all everything does have some relevance because there is some problem with with Irish mythology or certainly with the the version um, that I've 
been researching Lady Gregory's Irish mythology, which is incredible and it's so complete and it's an amazing book for me to have and to sift through. But there is a little bit of things being mentioned, like characters and events being mentioned that ultimately have no consequence. They're kind of just thrown in there and I've attempted to streamline them in some way to tell like kind of the simplest, not the simplest story, but just the 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 clearest stories. Philip Pullman said when you did the Greek Grim Tales, you want to make it as clear as water. So I tried to, I've caught a few characters, you know, that I like that were just put in there, but they were just son of this, son of that. And they ultimately had no bearing on the story. I tried to beef up some other characters. It was really nice to get to spend a bit of time with the Dagda in this because he's quite an important god or you're always told he's an important god but um, there aren't too many actual stories involving him especially since he becomes king after Lou which is um, closer to when the two of the Danan are nearly being overthrown or fading from memory and fading from popularity um, but it was really nice that he plays such a strong part and what a lovely what a lovely comical and Again, Irish, whatever that means, start to this quite serious, you know, like the Battle of Helm's Deep in Lord of the Rings. You can't imagine at the beginning of that a messenger, Aragorn, being sent to the orcs to try and get them to delay their attack and eating a massive stew and ending up with a belly the size of a cauldron. So even in the more serious, uh, tragic stories and this is this is far from one of the tragic ones the most tragic ones there's still allowed to be that moment of beautiful comedy which is so wonderful i think and so yes we've got lou lou fresh off the battle with the sons of tyran in the last in the last myth which again um so he's very kitted out he's kitted out with all this gear that he's got as a result of of the sons of tyran <laughs> And he doesn't even really use much of it. He uses, we can imagine it's the spear. It's the spear that they got from him. And we know that he has Manannan's horse, which the Sons of Tyrion wanted to wanted to take from him. And he wouldn't give them, but he had to give them the boat instead. Um, but not being allowed to go into battle. That's so interesting. And there becomes Cullen, who is, is Lou's descendant, and in a lot of ways the most famous character from all of Irish myth. What's interesting about him from a socio-political point of view is that he has been used in Ireland by by very opposing sides. Like, Kilcullen's been, like, he's been this representative of both republicanism and of unionism because Republicans seem as this incredible Irish hero, uh, like defending Ireland against foreign invaders, and Unionists see him against, as like a Northern Irish hero, fighting off the threats of the rest of Ireland, fighting other Irishmen. And there are arguments for both of them, definitely. Like, to be honest, I like the idea of Cúcullin being being used as as every Irish person wants him to, as all myths and folklore should be we should be able to use them as we want not to further war or 
or anything like that, of course, but just in an own personal way. But Lou here, his grandfather, great-grandfather, however far they're down the line, there's ve- there's a very Fenian vibe here. I've I've built I've built that up a little bit now, but not too much. You know, this idea of him riding into battle and this talk of foreign invaders, it gets very 1916-y very quickly, uh, which is, of course, natural. It's, it's an invader coming into Ireland. It's Ireland defending themselves and calling themselves to action. Um, and you can just see, you can see where the rebels... I mean, like, the Fien- like the reason the Fenians are called the Fenians is because of the Fianna. Like, you see here where... Like where it all came from, like where where the later revolutionaries of early late late nineteenth century and early twentieth century and all throughout the modern modern era or the like contemporary modern era, they where they all got this inspiration from. You really see it here, somewhere like that. Um of course, very confusingly, it's not the same Moitera. Because of course it isn't. It's the first battle of Moitero is against the Fair Bullogs in episode two. The coming of the two of the done. Um and yeah, you got Baylor. So let's talk about the FOMOR. Brez had his own eventful rule, has his unfortunate rule, went off to amass this army, and Baylor gave it to him. Baylor said, Let's go. Baylor being the grandson of Lung. Lou, everyone is related. Everyone is related in this, but that is a very significant in the story of Lou. That is his foretelling, and this this is one of the most Greek elements. This it makes it makes Lou quite like Perseus. He would have been one of the Perseus would have been one of the Greek characters I was less familiar with. Perseus is most famous for uh, for slaying Medusa, but he was as quite a few of them are, he was foretold to murder his own grandfather and he is sent He is sent away. He's himself. So when Perseus is a baby, himself and his mother, who's this king's daughter, they're put in a chest and they're cast out to sea and they're rescued by a group of sailors who adopt them as one of their own and they raise Perseus. And Perseus is eventually... Um, assigned his ward to this king who becomes quite sick of Perseus and so he sends him on this quest I'm so far butchering this story to some extent but I think it, the, the details get a bit better now go go listen to Stephen Fry read this properly but Perseus is sent on this quest to defeat Medusa and uh, the Gorgon who can turn who can petrify men just by staring at them so if you make Medusa's guy a I gaze, you get turned to stone. Um, he is sent to slay slay her and eventually does, marries all this and is brought back and eventually does kill his own grandfather. Um, everyone's always... Tr- like, to be fair, what are you going to do? Yeah, if you... If there's a prophecy saying that you're definitely going to die, <laughs> you're going you're gonna to fight against it. But Baylor tries to but can't. And we get to see the evil eye in action. That is one of... That finale is one of the most vivid images I've come across so far. This idea of this spear being thrown. This evil eye that burns everyone to death who make eye contact with it in a very Medusa kind of way. 
<clears throat> this idea of this spear going through the side, back of the back of the head, and burning every one of the foam ore. Like that's that's really like the thorn. Like that kind of crack happens a lot in the cattle raid of Cooley, in the Ulster cycle. That's where things get really bloody and really vivid. And that's 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 my favourite image of this story, definitely. And Baylor's end and getting his head cut off. <clears throat> There's been a few things towards the end, yeah, when we're wrapping things up. I finally found out I'd noticed a few times in the mythology this talk of a fifth province and I can't speak for every Irishman but I'd never I'd never known about a fifth province as Ireland is four provinces currently Ulster, Leinster, Munster and Connacht um, so I didn't know what this fifth province was and maybe anyone from there will have known this but the fifth co- province was feckin' Meath or Meath as it was known the middle so Meath and Westmeath were their own province. And that's where... I I looked up... Was, it said that one of the places that Lou is thought to have died in uh, is Isnach, which is at the... It's at the dead centre of Ireland. It's at the centre of the five provinces. So I looked up to see, did this place still exist and what this fifth province was, and I got led down a little bit of a rabbit hole and I found great stuff. Hill of Isnock is still there and there is still Loch Lou, which is where which is where Lou is thought to have come to his rest. In Lady Gregory's version he just says he, he died and is buried there. But when I did a bit of research it turns out that Lou's wife cheated on him with a ma- with another man and Lou quickly murdered that guy. But then Lou was murdered by the three sons of of your man, of the guy who'd slept with his wife. Which is a fairly dire end for him now. De- fairly dire mortal end anyway. Um I wasn't the big I I certainly didn't feel right ending ending this great battle story with, with that kind of ending. Um but that very interesting nonetheless to know that he actually possibly did meet this gruesome end and there's definitely serious par- parallels to the Sons of Tyran then even though the Sons of Tyran murdered Lou's father he went quite far with their penance certainly but the irony then of him being murdered by three sons of an enemy as well Um, so Hill of Isnock is gone on the list of places of uh, mythological places in Ireland to see because that's Another thing in terms of streamlining these stories, there's a lot of places mentioned. And I try and look up as many of them as I can, but a lot of them are hard to look up because they don't exist anymore, you know. So it's like, oh, he's buried here, or this this cairn was built here, this mountain was built here, and it was named this and it was named that. And I try to look them up to see if they still exist or if they... um, or if they're called something else. And I'm sure a lot of them do, but a lot of them are hard to find if they're not particularly famous. Like, I don't even know if a lot of them still existed when Lady Gregory would have been writing this, as she was a real translator as much as anything. Um, But it's always fantastic when something does, when you do find something that still exists. I I had someone message me, like the very first episode, Story of the Giant's Causeway, um... 
someone just messaged me saying that they couldn't get over that they never knew about Fingal's Cave, um, which is which is the point in Scotland, which is also like the Giant's Causeway. It's still the Basel col- Columns. So it's the other end of it, which is, of course, incredible, the idea of this bizarre phenomenon that happens like nowhere else really in the world. Uh, that being in such a corresponding location makes the myth so much more real and makes people not, the ancient people who believed in it, like so not, you, you get it so much more by that. Uh, so it's always very exciting to find places that are still in existence. I say it's one of the it's one of the best things about Ulysses. It's the best way I can describe Ulysses. There's Jim Norton, who people will know as uh, as Bishop Brennan from Father Ted. He uh, he narrates an audiobook of Ulysses, and listening to Ulysses walking around Dublin. Ulysses is like this incredibly known as this incredibly detailed portrayal of Dublin. Um, Joyce said it himself, you know, the famous quote that if uh, if Dublin was destroyed tomorrow, it could be rebuilt by the pages of his book. Um, walking around Dublin listening to a Ulysses audiobook is like if you were walking around Hogwarts listening to Stephen Fry, as far as I'm concerned. It makes it... Joyce's view of Dublin makes Dublin enchanted, no, not enchanting no matter how long you've lived here, I, I think, anyway. Um, so that's that's what it is for finding these mythological places. Very few of which I've found so far. I've found a, f- a couple. But it is... It's it makes it it makes the magic alive. It's like go, it's going to Hogwarts is the best way that I can articulate it as. It's like if you find this cairn or this place that corresponds with this myth that you're into, this story that you're into, you're going to Hogwarts. Um, and I want to try and go to as many of them as I can. So going to Hogwarts seems as good a place as any to wrap things up. I want to thank my producer Jamie. Um, I want to thank Headstuff, as always. I want to thank you, the listener. Uh, please, again, continue to like if you're enjoying it. Uh, subscribe to the podcast, leave a rating, leave a review. Uh, like the Facebook page, uh, Fireside the Irish Storytelling Podcast. Uh, follow me on Instagram, at uh, Solo, all one word, O-L-O-H-A-N-S-O-L-O. Um, or follow me on Twitter, at Ola Han Solo as well. I don't use the Twitter as much. I should probably stop advising to follow me on Twitter, but I am trying to get more and more into the Instagram. Um, I was a very, very late addition to Instagram. I only really got it this year, but I think it is, it's such a great way um, of, it's such a great business business tool, business model, to be honest, and it's a great way to um, spread the podcast and I think it's the. I think it in going forward it will be uh, the best place if anyone wants to contact me, if anyone wants to send me messages of things that you like or hell if you even don't like, I'm quite sensitive so I can't promise I won't take offence of anything that you don't like, but I still want you to send it because I want to get over myself about that and I want this podcast to be the best thing it can be. Um, I can't promise that I'll that I'll do every, everything that you ask. But if a few people, you know, if a few people send me a similar kind of request of a kind of story or a kind of thing to do or not do, then I I can't really ignore it, can I? And I want that because I want this to be the socialistic model of podcasting, as Blind Boy himself calls it. 
uh, is what I want to make it the best it can be. So thank you so much. Next week, we have another folktale. We might have a couple of couple of little folktales together. Still have to decide. And after that, uh, when we return to the myths, this is this is kind of we're nearly wrapping up the early Irish mythology. This is the big, this is the big story, or this is the big build up to this story. And so this is the big first big finale. But the next myth that we do is it's probably the most famous Irish myth of all time. Doesn't necessarily mean it's my favorite, um, but it is. There's a lot of characters of Irish mythology that people would know, but might not know the stories of. But I think, in terms of a story, this next one is probably the most famous of all time. I think mostly because of its such a strong imagery. Um, but you'll see yourself. I look forward to. I look forward to having a, a take on it myself. Um, I won't say what it is. Uh, I'll leave that. I think. I think most people, if anyone is any familiar at all, it's the most famous from the early one particularly and possibly the most famous of all time. Uh, but uh, you'll just have to wait and see. I swear to God I do know. I'm not being intentionally vague. I uh, just want to leave a little air of mystery. Okay, I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. He'll keep calling. He'll keep calling. Ferris Bueller reference for anyone. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you next time on Fireside. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.